life gets busy, right? So in the, in the past, I would say in the past year, um, I've been busy as a janitor, as an actor, as a stand-up comedian, you know, trying to get work as an actor, you know, um, producing my own stand-up comedy shows, getting out there, doing mics, producing the podcast. Life gets busy. And there was a book that I had been reading that um, kind of got out of my grip as life got busy. This is a book that I find very, very interesting. Um, philosophy, the basics. Uh oh, there's a little bit of a lighting issue there. Philosophy, the basics. This is um, a book by Nigel Warburton. And it's on the basics of philosophy. So that's what I'm kind of dipping into during this pandemic season, getting back to recharging my mind. And coincidentally, the book, and I'll, po and I'll post some information on it, but the book, uh, Philosophy, The Basics by Nigel Warburton, it's a concise um, breakdown of the basics of philosophy. Some of the basic questions being, um, I'll read from the back here, um, and this is a book you can get on like uh, Amazon if y'all want to read along with me at home. This is a book you can get from Amazon uh, for like, it was under $30. I think it was like $22 or something. You can order it from Amazon. But I'll read you the back. Knowledge begins with the basics. Philosophy, the basics, deservedly remains the most recommended introduction to philosophy on the market. Warburton is a patient, accurate, and above all, clear. There is no better short introduction to philosophy. And um, each chapter considers a key area of philosophy, explaining and exploring the basic ideas and themes, including how do we know right from wrong? How do we know right from wrong? I don't know. Seriously, how do we know right from wrong? We deal with it on a daily basis. Look at Donald Trump. You know, okay, here's what you want to do, folks. You want to ingest Lysol and Windex up your asshole and go out and suntan, and that's going to, you know, save you from the Kung Flu Chinese virus, okay? How do we know right from wrong? You know, we're listening to our world leaders just saying shit. How do we know right from wrong? That's a great philosophical, a philosophical question. How do we know right from wrong? How should we treat non-human animals? You know? How should we treat animals? You know? During coronavirus, food is scarce. Should we just eat anything? Should you eat your pet hamster? You know? Social distancing. It's hard to meet somebody. You know, during these times, what about the youth? What about these funky, fired up, sex charged, you know, youthful motherfuckers out there? Should we be fucking animals? You know, so these are great questions. How should we treat non-human animals? What are the limits of free speech? Should I even be talking about fucking animals? You know what I mean? What are the limits of free speech? Do we know how science works? Well, obviously we do. Okay, on a scientific level, what you do is you drink a gallon of bleach and that will ward off uh, herpes, 
anal warts, coronavirus, etc. Okay, anal bleaching. Do we know how science works? That's a good question. What the hell is science? Is your mind different from your body? Yeah. Because, like, think about it. You imagine something in your head, you get aroused, and then you masturbate. Where did the masturbation come from, the mind or the body? You know? Is your mind different from your body? Can you define art? Can you define it? What do you call this? Am I an artist or am I just a has-been hack, washed-up, lousy, low-down, shiftless, good-for-nothing, rotten crummies, bubble guppy? Like, what the fuck is this? Is this art? <sighs> so these are all questions covered in um, Philosophy, The Basics by Nigel Warburton. And coincidentally, during this time of pandemic, the first chapter, which I'm going to break down for y'all here, is one philosophical question which has haunted mankind since the dawn of the scrotum. Can you prove God exists? Can you prove God exists? You know, that's a major argument. People throughout history, throughout time, in time, these times. These are questions we think of. And there are many different arguments outlined in the book by Nigel Warburton, Philosophy, The Basics. One of the main arguments that we all pretty much know on some level is the design argument. The design argument. And what the design argument more or less entails is when you look out there in the world, um, there's evidence of, pardon moi, <clears throat> see, like that, that burp there is, is evidence of the design argument. As a human being, I drink something, it gives me a little bit of internal gas, and in order to keep my body functioning, by no thought or choice of my own, I burp. You know, that's the design argument. It's like everything bears evidence of being designed, you know, much like a watch, right? When you look at a watch, you know, classic Casio timepiece, when you look at a watch, there, there's evidence of a design, you know, um, this is a digital watch, but like, you know, like one of those old clocks, you know, like Geppetto made or whatever and Pinocchio, like with the gears and all that shit, like a watch. When you look at it, it bears evidence of a design, the way every little meticulous piece fits together. So that's the design argument. When you look at the world, there's evidence, you know, like I burp. Oh, that's a design. Or when you look at the human eye and the intricacy of it, all the little capillaries and all the little, um, you know, eyelashes and the iris and the eyelid and, you know, all that stuff, man. Like it bears evidence of a design, right? Well, there's a contradiction to that argument. The contradiction is, um, well, uh, yes, everything bears evidence of being designed, but it's kind of a weak analogy, right? Like one thing isn't like the other. 
Like just because you can look at a watch and say, oh, that bears evidence of being designed. Like, oh, look at this watch. Look at the wristband. Oh, look how it's obviously been designed. Well, the contradiction being, well, that's kind of a weak way to describe life. Like, yeah, a watch bears evidence of being designed, but can you really use that as the same analogy when it comes to like the intricacies of like botany? You know, you look at a marijuana plant, like, oh, gee, how did that get designed? Is it really the same thing, a watch and a marijuana plant, you know? So, like, there's that kind of contradiction. And it really doesn't prove an all-powerful, all-knowing God. That's, like, one of the criticisms of the design argument. It really don't prove that because, well, there are a lot of flaws in the designs on the planet, right? Like, for example, the eye. As I mentioned, the eye, while it is very intricately designed to function, it also has a lot of weak points. You get cataracts. Um, as you age, you lose your vision, you know? Marijuana plants. Sometimes you get some skunk fucking dank weed that don't get you that high. I don't know. I haven't smoked weed in a minute. But, like, you know, like some weed is less potent than others, you know? So it's like there's, there's flaws, in the design argument, right? So that's food for thought. Another argument in regards to does God exist is the fine-tuning argument. And what that's about is um, what are the chances that the world came about of its own accord? Like, what are the chances? So that's the fine-tuning argument. It's just like, okay, boom. The world. Like, whoa, like, what are the chances of, of that all coming together perfectly? What are the chances that, you know, the human body can function properly? Animals, plant life, uh, organisms, bacteria, viruses, the Chinese flu, Kung flu. Like, what are the chances all these things work? What are the chances that an ecosystem can feed itself and work kind of collectively. Like, what are the chances, right? So that's the fine-tuning argument. What are the chances of everything coming together? But the contradiction, the criticism of the fine-tuning argument is, um, well, just because things seem improbable, doesn't mean that they don't happen. Like, for example, a lottery. You know, you play a state's lottery. You play a nationwide lottery. What are the chances that you're going to win the jackpot? Well, someone usually wins. And no matter how improbable, it doesn't mean things don't happen. Like, for example, with the coronavirus. Everybody's going Wuhan, Wuhan, batshit crazy. Over like, oh my God, this person caught the Wuhan virus, the Chinese Kung flu. Oh my God. Oh, oh my God. Is this thing more serious than we thought it was? Well, oh, hold on, hold on, hold on. While improbable that a young, healthy person will catch the coronavirus, it does happen. You know, and 80% of people who catch it recover 
without any special treatment? Well, there's still 20% of people that need that extra treatment. So while the odds sometimes are stacked against certain situations, it doesn't mean it doesn't happen. So that's the criticism, that's the criticism of the fine-tuning argument. The, the argument being like, oh, what are the chances the world was created perfectly? Well, as improbable as it may seem, sometimes motherfuckers hit the lottery. Ka-ching, right? So there's that argument. Um, another argument for does God exist is the um, first cause argument. First cause argument. And that is that um, the universe exists and something caused it. Like, the universe exists, meaning something caused it to exist. Right? Okay. You can follow that argument. Like, it's kind of logical. One thing leads to another. You know? First cause argument. Something caused the universe. Okay, well, the contradiction and the criticism there is, well, what caused God? Right? If the universe, if God caused the universe, well, what caused God? Which came first, the chicken or the egg? Tell me, motherfucker, tell me! All right? So there's that argument and there's that criticism. First cause. And another criticism of that is, okay, well, one thing leads to another. Something caused the universe. Okay, that may or may not be proof that God exists, but, you know, you can't really go back. Like, you know, time is on a continuum. It's almost like infinity. It's like you'll never have a larger number. You'll never have an infinite number because you can always add one to that. Infinity plus one to infinity plus one and beyond, as Buzz Lightyear would say. You can always add one to an infinity. So going backwards, it's the same deal where it's like this strange continuum of infinity. It's like, how do you go back to the first cause? Who knows where the fuck that started? Right? It's a mind fuck. So there's that argument. Then there's the ontological argument. If you want to argue with me here, the ontological argument, and that is the attempt to show the existence of God follows from the definition of God as the supreme being. So, okay, there's the, uh, in their argument, the ontological argument, well, God exists because God is the supreme being. That's their argument, you know, and while that that is like the cornerstone of a lot of having grown up christian myself that is what a lot of people would argue how do you know god exists because god exists yeah but i want to know how i can make it real to me like in my heart in my mind like how do i know god is real how do i know god exists because god exists that's more or less the ontological argument. God is the supreme being, right? And that's the contradiction. That's the criticism. People go, okay, well, just because you say something exists doesn't mean it necessarily exists. Like, we can all imagine something that exists, 
Um, the argument Nigel Burton, Warburton, the argument he uses here for that criticism is, okay, we can all imagine a perfect island, right? There's a perfect island out there in the ocean, perfect animals, perfect weather, perfect fruit, perfect uh, harem of stranded Sports Illustrated models in their bikinis, wanting nothing but to play with your balls 24-7. Like, we can all imagine a perfect island, right? But that doesn't necessarily mean it exists, right? So that's like almost the laughable criticism of the ontological argument. God is the supreme being. Okay, but... <laughs> Just because you say that doesn't necessarily mean it exists. So, you know, there's the ontological argument. And also a part of that as well is existence is not a property. That's another argument to the ontological, another criticism of the ontological argument. Existence is not a property. One of the examples they use is like, um, okay, bachelors exist. Right. Well, that kind of makes some sense to a degree because we know that there are men who are unmarried. In order for bachelors to exist, it is known that men exist. Like a male bachelor, we know that males exist. So it's a logical step to say, okay, bachelors exist because a bachelor is an unmarried male. Well, we know that males exist. The pre-existing prerequisite for bachelors is man. We know man exists. But existence is not a property. So to say that, well, how do we know God exists? Because God is the supreme being. Well, existence is not a property. You know, we don't know that God exists. We don't know. Right? That's where faith, belief, your own personal system of commitment, that's where all that comes into play. For example, I am a believer. Before I go too much further down this line, I am a believer in sorts, but I'll get to that. So existence is not a property. That's another criticism of the ontological argument. Okay? Are you guys taking notes, by the way? There's going to be an exam at the end of this podcast. Um, and you're going to have to pay for it too. So um, if you want to make a donation to the exam of Jonathan Ramtran, the podcast, just send your donations into that's Jonathan. <clears throat> All right. So those are some of the main arguments, you know, about whether God exists. The design argument, you know, everything bears evidence of a, of being designed. The design argument. Then there's the fine-tuning argument, which is, you know, what are the chances that the world just came into existence? What are the chances? The fine-tuning argument. Then you got first cause. Well, something caused the universe. The first cause argument. Then you got the ontological argument. God is the supreme being. Ontological argument. All right. So those are some of the arguments about whether or not God exists. Well, a lot of times there's the contradiction to that, where it's like, okay, well, what about 
evil. <laughs> evil. How do you explain evil? Right? That's a lot of, um, that's a big question in the search for belief in God. We question. Okay, if God exists, well, how do you explain evil? Why is this such a fucking dog, dick, beaten, fucking shit sandwich existence? Yo, why are we getting fucking, fucking booty raped at every fucking turn, right? Okay, well, you know, we have different types of evil. We have moral evil, right? Which is basically human evil, humankind evil. The things that we do to each other in this world. War, torture, rape, murder, um, extortion, stealing, financial ruin, like moral evil. You know, we have moral evil. Then we also have natural evil. That is like, um, you know, earthquake, famine, natural disaster, hurricanes, things of that nature, you know, natural evil. So how do you explain evil in this world? And where's God in relation to that? Okay. Well, some people can argue that, okay, well, how do we, some of the arguments for like why evil exists, okay, for example, saintliness. Evil exists in order to show a sharp contrast, a sharp contrast. You know, it's like, okay, if there wasn't for evil, then we wouldn't have the sharp contrast of saint, saintliness. All the Mother Teresa's, Gandhi's, you know, um, Tupac Shakur's, all these motherfuckers that like show this saint-like morality in the face of evil you know it's like saintliness points out our heroes and it guides us to a higher human moral that's the purpose of evil to highlight the good right to show us that there are higher levels of moral existence right well, the contradiction to that is, well, like, well, it's unbalanced and it's in large part, um, it's in large part um, unrecorded. You know what I mean? Like, how do we even know the good that people do? It's almost like um, to, com to be compared as, you know, you know, nine out of 10 people might say good morning to you with a smile. But that one in 10 motherfucker that just like gives you a dirty look and slams the door in your face, doesn't hold the door for you when you guys are like walking through a door, they just give you that dirty look and let the door slam on you, you know? It's that one in 10 aspect where it's like a lot of the good that people do in this world, it's kind of unrecorded. It's kind of just out there in the ether, unfortunately not making much of an impact. It's usually the bad deeds that stay in people's mind. The Holocaust, um, genocide, you know, uh, you know, things of that nature that really tear into the soul of mankind. And also, like, who's to say that a world with less saints 
and less heroes wouldn't be preferred. Like if you had the choice between, okay, let's get rid of evil, like just the basic evil of the world, we'll get rid of it. That means that there's not going to be as many saints, not as many Mother Teresas, not as many Bugs Bug Bunnies, not as many fucking Elmer Fudds, like the things that make people happy, the heroes. There's not going to be as many of those, but there's not going to be that much evil in general. Who's to say that wouldn't be more preferable? Right? Wouldn't it be more preferable to have less evil? Like, just, like I don't really care. Like, who, like, who's to say that wouldn't be more preferable? I personally would like a world where, okay, sure, there's no Mother Teresa's. There's no, um, you know, uh, what's that little dummy's name? A little fucking activist. A little Swedish, Swedish berry. What's her fucking name? A little Swedish meatball. What's her dumbass name? I don't know. The little social activist. I can't think of it. Gretchen Van Helsing. Whatever her name is. You know, the environmentalist. Let me look, let me look it up. I want to make a point. Uh, social, social uh, environmentalist, Sweden. Sweden. Gretchen. Greta. Greta Garbo. What's her fucking name? Diddly doo, daddle dum, daddle doo. Greta Thunberg. <laughs> you know, who's to say that a world without Greta Thunberg wouldn't be more preferable to a world where there's just like no evil in general? I'd take that any day of the week. Get rid of her. Keep, uh, just keep it calm, collected, and cool in general, right? And it's also like, um, in regards to the why does evil exist argument. Okay, well, evil exists as an artistic standpoint, you know? If it wasn't for evil, art couldn't really exist. Like in like the way that Nigel Warburton describes it in the book, he says, um, you know, when you're listening to classical music or any type of music really, there's usually like, you know, a, a, a procession, a procession of chords, you know, and then there's some dissonance, you know, like there's some kind of um, unresolved tension, which eventually gets resolved and it brings the musical piece to a orgasmic crescendo or something like that. Right. You know, there's like, um, you know, tension. It's kind of like suspense. You're watching a great film. There's got to be a little bit of a tension, a little bit of a disturbance to make it interesting for the audience at times. Right. So it's like, okay, the artistic view is that evil highlights artistic meaning. Right? We can only enjoy the beauty of the world in contrast to the evil. You know, light and darkness, peaks and valleys. Well, some of the argument against that is, well, that type of beauty, it must not be... It must be beyond human comprehension because like the example that Nigel Warburton gives is like, okay, you see a dead soldier trapped in barbed wire. What kind of person would look at that and be like, oh, wow, it really highlights the beauty of this um, war field that we're all on. Oh, it really highlights the beauty of this charming foxhole to see a dead soldier splayed out there um, 
on the fucking barbed wire, you know? It's really kind of a strange... It's really for unhuman eyes, any rational feeling human eye. How would you look at that and see the beauty in it? It's a strange comparison. And also, number two, it lends credence to... Okay, so if the purpose of evil is to highlight the beauty of the world, that sounds more like the work of a sadist more than it sounds like the work of a omnipotent, omniscient, omniscient, all-loving God, right? Sounds more like a sadist. So, so there's some of the criticism there in regards to that, right? And, you know, to the question of evil, there's also the free will defense, right? God has given humans free will. You know, we are free to do as we choose. Well, that assumes that, you know, the world that we're programmed in, um, a lot of people believe that we are a sum of our, of our experiences, we are sums of our experiences. What we do is a relation to our overall experience. So basically, in some sense, every action we make has already been predetermined because we're programmed by the sum of our experiences. You know, who we are, what we've been through, some people can believe is already pre-programmed. So it's like, Where's the free will in that? Right? That's an argument, whether we believe it or not. And um, also, why couldn't an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving God program us to have free will, but to always choose to be good? Right? God is all-powerful. God is omnipotent, omniscient. God is all-knowing, all-powerful. Why couldn't God program us to be, um, you know, for the good? Right? Why wouldn't he program us to like, okay, yeah, we, he or she, why wouldn't he or she program us to, okay, well, we see what is good, what is bad, but we're going to make the good decision 100% of the time. Why couldn't God do that? That's a criticism of the, the, the free will defense, right? And then there comes like miracles into the whole, does God exist, good and evil? Does God exist, good and evil? Then there comes the question of like miracles, right? All right. Well, miracles are based on like, you know, a law of nature being broken in a seemingly divine intervention type of manner, right? There's a law of nature. It seems to have been broken by divine intervention. That is what people generally describe as a miracle, define as a miracle. And, you know, there's benefits to the law of nature, you know, like, for example, a lack of regularity in life could make it impossible to live if, like, Every time you do something, you get a conflicting result. How would we know how to make sense? If like you step off, a, if you step off a cliff and you don't fall to the ground and die, 
how do we make sense of a world where it's like, okay, sometimes you fall off a cliff and sometimes you don't. Then you wouldn't know what to do, how to act, right? If only 50% of the time when you put your hand on fire, you get burnt. If only 50% of the time you get burnt when you touch flame, how would we know how to relate with nature? So the laws of nature exist in a sense, as cruel as they are, as a checks and balance type of situation, right? So we depend on the laws of nature to make sense of the world. You know, it would be pretty difficult to live otherwise, right? But, um, you know, let me, uh, let me see here. But in regards to miracles, like divine intervention is the normal course of events, right? Uh, never mind that, sorry. Um, so to contrast, to contradict the idea of miracles, it's like, well, it's improbable something could be thought of as a miracle when the overwhelming evidence is to the contrary, right? That is some of the criticism to miracles where it's like, okay, well, is it really divine intervention? Because, you know, somebody might rise from the dead. You know what I mean? Somebody might be declared clinically dead and it's possible that they may rise. I don't know. Something happens. Some strange unexplained situation happens. Like all of a sudden they just, their heart starts beating again. There's been cases of that. You know, but, you know, they come back from the brink of death, but there's so much evidence to the contrary that like when you die, you die. And that wasn't a miracle. That was more like a freak occurrence. You know, it's like when there's so much proof of the contradictory, there's so much proof to the contrary some people believe that we should be very weary of miracles, very leery of them, you know? And there's also like the idea of like psychological factors, you know, the overwhelming sense of emotion somebody might feel at a hospital at the side of their loved one's deathbed and they're praying and they're praying and oh god save my grandfather you know he's only 95 years old and you're praying and you're crying to god then all of a sudden oh grandpa's back from the dead oh my god it's a miracle there's emotional psychological factors to things you know it's a heated moment there's a tense thing going on Maybe what you're seeing is not a miracle as much as it's your emotions getting swept up with you. You know what I mean? And like, uh, you know, and also like religion cancels a lot of that out. Because it's like, okay, well, if a miracle does occur, well, what God caused the miracle? You know, was it Buddha? Was it fucking Allah? Was it Christ? Was it, um, you know... Hercules was it fucking Zeus like who who caused the miracle so there becomes the question of like does do miracles cancel out religion you know who it's a mind tease 
So, you know, we talked about, you know, arguments for the existence of God. We talked about, um, you know, the problem of evil. We talked about miracles. So then we come to a point where, well, where, what does this all mean? Well, some people believe that, you know, there's an argument, which is called loosely the gambler's argument, which is basically you stand to gain more by belief. So believing in God is better. The chances and odds of you gaining from belief versus non-belief are greater. So why not believe in God? The odds are better, you know? If you believe in God, you stand to gain eternal life. If you don't believe in God, well, you stand to lose, right? Well, criticism of that argument is like, okay, well, you can't just choose to believe, right? Like belief is something that is in your heart. It's ingrained very deeply. Like, for example, if, if, if you're to tell me that Come tomorrow, I'm going to believe that pigs fly. I can tell myself I believe that all I want, but I know that pigs don't fly. In my heart, I believe that pigs don't fly. So I could pretend to believe that pigs fly, but at the end of the day, you really don't believe. Right? So there's the criticism to that. It's like you can't just choose to believe. And number two, um, some people would deem that inappropriate. You know, like, it's inappropriate to have a bet on whether or not God exists, you know? And furthermore, there might be a thought or a belief or a sentiment that God may take pleasure in casting you into eternal damnation for your, for your inappropriate attitude to the situation. Like, you're trying to get one over on God, you know? I'm going to play the odds against God, you know? Like... God might take offense to that and take pleasure in sending you off to meet the devil, so to speak, right? And that all ties in with like, okay. Well, it doesn't really tie. Well, it ties into the idea of like, okay, well. What about just the, the argument of non-realism, which is like, okay. We make this mistake that religion, um, we make this, we make this mistake that God is something separate from, or God and humankind are connected as one. Whereas like the non-realism belief is, we, th oh yeah, like basically religious ceremony brings forth the highest in human morals. So basically, the non-realism belief is like, okay, well, God is not to be something to thought of as like well-defined. This one's a little tricky. Like God, we make the mistake when we think of God as something existing apart from humans, you know? When really religious ceremony is to bring forward the best moral values of humankind, right? So we shouldn't think of God as something wholly separate from us and, you know, something independently existing. It's, it's more so religion, religion. 
ideas, values, moral insight is what's invaluable, not so much God, right? That's the non-realism belief. And the criticism of that is, well, like, well it kind of lends itself to a veiled atheism, a non-belief in a higher power, right? To say that, okay, well, religion isn't to be taken literally. It's to be said that we get moral value from religion, but it's not literal. God doesn't actually exist. It's more so just the moral value. That's the non-realism argument. And the contradiction to that is, well, it's basically veiled atheism, so to speak. And that brings forth the idea of faith. Like, okay, belief in God is an abstract. It's intellectual speculation rather than personal commitment. You know, it's, it's that, you know, faith isn't this abstract intellectual thing where we sit around and, um, you know, okay, I, I'm going to take this little piece and that little piece, but none of that, none of this, like, it's really about personal commitment, what you feel inside and what you're willing to personally commit, you know, that's some of the idea behind um, belief, faith rather faith and now finally we come to death Ooh. especially in the time of covid19 people are scared to death and um you know can't hurt to give it a couple moments of consideration am i right so it's like okay if we are no longer around to face harm can it harm us you know is it rational is it irrational to be afraid of death because if we're no longer around to be harmed by death what is there to fear, right? Is it irrational to be afraid of death, right? That's a valid point. Well, the contradiction to that is like, oh, and furthermore, sorry, furthermore, um, we don't contemplate our non-existence before birth. So why should we contemplate our non-existence after death, right? You're not so worried about what you were doing as a fucking spermioid, a spermioid, like, were you concerned about what you were doing in your dad's nutsack? You weren't that concerned. Why are we so concerned about what happens after death if we weren't so concerned about what happened before death? So these are the questions that arise. Is fear of death irrational? Well, the contradiction, the, the argument, the criticism would be, well, that assumes that the afterlife isn't bad, right? What if there is something to fear? Maybe you're a horrible person and hell awaits you in the afterlife. That's a rational reason to fear death. What if there is an afterlife and, you know, you are potentially going to be cast into hell, eternal damnation? Perhaps death is something rational to be feared, right? You know, questions, queries, and qualms. And, you know, so I, obviously death, it, it bears the question of immortality. Okay. One of the questions being, would immortality be tedious? You know, isn't it the finality of life that gives life its meaning? The idea that the beauty of spring is, it's almost like the artistic argument. The beauty of spring is so valuable because we know the looming destruction of winter, right? So it's like, 
The finality of death is what gives life meaning. So would immortality be tedious? Well, a criticism, the argument to that would be, well, an all-powerful, all-knowing God obviously wouldn't he or she be able to create eternal paradise? The worry of boredom, tedium, wouldn't God be able to fix that in the eternal afterlife? You know? So yes, that is pretty much the summation of the first chapter of Nigel Warburton. Nigel Warburton's very interesting book, um, Philosophy, The Basics by Nigel Warburton. Those are some of the questions regarding um, does God exist? You know, the arguments for does God exist? The problem of evil, miracles, um, death, immortality, major concepts. And, you know, I hope I gave you a fun, interesting kind of summation introduction to some of those ideas. Obviously, check out the book or further readings wherever you can on this information. Um, and definitely hit me up, jr.thepodcast at gmail.com. What are your thoughts on, um, you know, does God exist? What are your thoughts on the arguments for the existence of God, against the, against the existence of God? Um, the problem of evil, miracles, immortality, death, you know? What is your thought, you know? It's a big, 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 it's like the question for the ages. Does God exist? Please do hit me up, jr.thepodcast at gmail.com. And again, you know, I'll put on some information for you. If you want to do catch this book, check out this book, Nigel Warburton. Philosophy, the basics. I'll link you some information, okay? So yeah, definitely uh, get at me in regards to that. And what I'm doing for now is I'm just moving forward, healthy, hopeful, hallelujah, keeping my mind spinning, keeping my body uh, grinning, and, um, you know, all in a day's work, folks. Happy quarantine to ya.